This week on The Futurists. In um, my last two books, Stars and Bones, and the one that's coming out next year called Descendant Machine, they're set in a universe where humanity, and I didn't mean this to be topical when I started writing it, but um, they're, they're set in a, a world where humanity, uh, the, the planet's in trouble, the climate's in trouble, and then through a series of escalating international tensions, a nuclear war is launched. The day the book was published, the tanks rolled into Ukraine, so I thought, oh my God. Um, at that moment, um, an alien entity intervenes and saves the human race, but exiles them from the planet in order to give the planet time to heal itself. And we're set adrift in some arcs, which are intelligent and can look after every need. Nobody is starving, nobody is, is um, in want for shelter or medical attention. It's what you might call a utopia in that there's no scarcity, there's no inequality, everyone has everything they need. Various historical periods have been considered utopias by the people living in them, but for the people who were catering for them and uh, slaving for them, it was certainly not a utopia. So utopia is just, I think, depends where you stand. Well, welcome back to The Futurists. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Brett King, with my co-host, Rob Tursek. And uh, we've got a real treat for you today. We're going to get totally sci-fi. Um, so joining us on the show today is a British author of science fiction. He's written uh, several novels. Um, he's won the BSFA Award for Best Novel Twice for Ak, Ak Macau and Embers of War, which is probably my fa favourite, uh, dealing with a sentient um, um, starship that, um, you know, has regrets of his role in or its role in the war um, that it, it was in. Um, and also he's done a host of uh, short stories, um, magazines. He writes uh, in the, uh, uh, the engineering space. He's given lectures on creative writing at many universities. Gareth Powell, welcome to The Futurists. Hi. Hi, Gareth. So, um, you know, you write these big, epic sci-fi um, pieces, space operas, is is generally the the genre that we identify with. But I'm I'm I, I, maybe we can just start with what got you into this field. What interests you about sci-fi? You know, in general, and and what took you down this path? Um, I think I've always been down this path. Um, I don't think there was a time I wasn't at least halfway down it. Um, some of my very earliest memories, and we're going back to the age of three or four, are of watching uh, Star Trek, the original series, on an old black and white TV. I think this was the very early 70s, so it's probably the first time it was shown in the UK. Um, and at the same time, we were watching footage from the last moon landings, from the Apollo Soyuz link-up, is, is one I very uh, vividly remember. Um, and Skylab, and then the Space Shuttle, uh, Star Wars came along, Battlestar Galactica. You know, the early 70s, early 80s were just, it seemed obvious that by the year 2000, if we weren't all dead from a nuclear war, we would all be living on the moon. So, you know, I was always in that um, in that headspace. I, I read Larry Niven, Robert Heinlein, um, a lot of Arthur C. Clarke growing up. Um, and it was what I always wanted I to do. I can relate to all had, this. Yeah, I just had no no way to understand how you got from being a kid growing up in a village near Bristol to being Arthur C. Clarke. So, and it wasn't till I was a bit older. Um, I always tried to write, um, but it wasn't until the turn of the millennium when... Uh, obviously, we were going into a whole new millennium, and I was due to turn 30, and I thought, right, it's time to put up or shut up. So I uh, I wrote my first novel. So. How did it feel starting to write for the first time? Uh, well, I've, I've made many first attempts over the years. Um, mm -hmm. So this was just this was just another one. The, the difference was that I actually stuck with it. Um and got, got through to a, a conclusion. So, How did you do that? Because quite a few people start to write something, even people who start a blog and then they abandon it. How did you manage to find the stamina to persist? Um, you could call it stamina. You could call it sheer bloody-mindedness. 
but I was I was working sort of 40 hours a week um, for a software company at the time. So I would come home and then in the evenings I would write from about nine o'clock through to midnight um, mm. every night. And that's that obviously before I had children. Um, so uh, that whole routine took a, a nosedive after that. But that was basically what I did every night. I would come home, I would write for three hours before bed. Um, so no Star Trek, so do you, do no, no TV at that point, yeah. just writing. I find it interesting. Um, you you write at home mostly, yes. Because I I I as I mostly write at coffee shops. I like the white noise. It, it helps me creatively. But then you know we had Kevin J Anderson Anderson on as one of our um, early uh, episodes, and he he records into a dictaphone while he's hiking. That's how he writes, which uh, I just find that extraordinary. I still can't work out how he's able to do so so well with that but you know because dealing with all the different plot lines and things like that in your head but uh i guess you know he he churns out these books like what does he do six or seven books a year at least i think you know so which is just you know a uh, just phenomenal um throughput um but uh yeah um so um you know i know uh you you did uh light chaser um with peter f hamilton um i i do uh, you know i find some synergy there from both of you guys because you do tend to write you know and and ian banks is another one um with the culture series um when you're talking about far-flung human um you know evolution and the species of humanity in the future um you know uh, living with intelligent warships and and all of this sort of stuff but um in terms of envisioning these worlds and the worldviews that that you've created do you do a lot of planning in the background and sort of mapping out what these civilizations are going to be like or is it more that this sort of develops in the narrative and you you know you take that core plot um like like in embers of war you know with this uh you know sentient uh you know warship and build build on that or or, or are you trying to create a longer term view of of humanity from a space opera perspective i do a lot less planning than people seem to assume I do. Um, I usually start any story with the characters um, and then concoct a background against which I can tell the story I want to tell about those characters. Um, I will usually have a fairly good kind of notion of what the, the, the background universe is like. But I'm not one of those, I mean, you know, I'm not J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm not going to invent um, new languages and maps and, and, and all of that. I just, um, I flesh out what is needed in order to tell the story. Um, mm -hmm. So there's no extraneous, hopefully no extraneous explaining and uh, scene setting. Hopefully everything that I put in there just increases the verisimilitude of the story. And a lot of the time it will also evolve organically as the story goes along. Uh, the For Embers of War, for instance, I wanted to tell a story about a warship who had accidentally developed a conscience. So in order to do that, I had to have a war. And in order to do that, I had to have two sides to the war. So I went and thought of these two sides to the war. And it kind of grew out of that, like, um, it wasn't, you know, I didn't come up with the universe first and think, how can I explore this? I came up with the character and thought, how can I best, how can this character best exist? And what will present the biggest challenges to her? In terms of kind of communicating that, um, I kind of just like to sprinkle details in and names that maybe aren't explained. Um, and I guess I got that from the first Star Wars movie, um, when we all watched it in 1975 or whenever. And Ben Kenobi said, your father fought with me in the Clone Wars. And we were all thinking, what the hell are the Clone Wars? Exactly. But yeah. it just kind of fired your imagination and it made the universe seem so much larger. And so I just tried to do that, just little uh, details that kind of spark the imagination and make the universe seem more real. Uh, you know, when you start thinking about these far-flung, um, you know, things, you know, obviously part of the fuel for this is thinking about the future tech that we might deploy, you know, how this uh, evolves. 
Um, you know, what do you do in terms of research to keep you grounded in areas like artificial intelligence, gene therapy, you know, sort of the, the stuff that we're seeing develop now that could evolve in into this worldview? I keep up with the uh, sort of popular science news um, through New Scientist and, and um, Scientific American and other and Twitter feeds and, you know, just keep a, a general uh, sense of the temperature of the room, so to speak. Um, and on top of that, if I'm specifically researching, uh, for instance, artificial intelligence, I'll just try and read up a bit about the field, some of the philosophy around the field, and um, enough to make it seem plausible. Uh, obviously, I don't know how to construct an artificial intelligence, otherwise I would not be a poor science fiction writer, I'd be a multi-billionaire um, living in the Bahamas. So I just kind of try to get it so it looks and feels authentic. Um, my blueprint is, for instance, if I was writing a book set today, I wouldn't have a character walk out of his house, get into a car and spend five pages explaining how the internal combustion engine works. He would just get in his car and drive off. So I try to do that with the technology in my science fiction. So I don't try and over, you know, I don't have characters turning to each other and saying, as you know, the quantum drive works like this because it's, uh, you know, Tec techno babble as it's yeah, called in yeah. Star Trek. Right. Yeah. So I just try to show it working and let the, the reader kind of, um, imagine how that how that is working and, and kind of get a, an idea of the constraints of the technology and the limits of the technology which okay. is where which is the important thing for the story that, that, that makes sense you're doing a service for your readers because they don't have to plow through all of that uh, logical exp exposition but you're also saving yourself some effort because really it's a story people want to be entertained they don't want a technical manual uh to read through i noticed uh, i think on your blog you wrote something about um interstellar transportation uh, and the notion that, you know, if you're going to have spaceships, then you're going to have to explain how they get from point A to point B. And, and there's a series of logical fallacies that can happen if you don't think that through carefully. So, you know, while you're telling us that you're writing, you're first and foremost writing about characters and drama and conflict and situations, I see that you also have at least part of your processes to uh, then kind of apply a logical constraint uh, to some of the assumptions in the world. And then uh, from that, you know, extrapolate out what what the mechanisms are to make that world work, even if you don't have to flesh out exactly how the mechanisms work or how the physics behind it work. Uh, did I get that right? Is that kind of on, on track? Yeah. For any technology you invent, you have to look at the potential downsides. It's the mm -hmm. old saying, you can't predict the car without predicting the traffic jam. So, well, don't you wish we did that with social media about 10 years ago? Yeah. Had we spent a minute to think about the potential downsides, maybe we wouldn't be in the situations that we're in right now. Yes, it's the old Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Yes. Right. It's right. Like, yeah. Maybe you shouldn't have done it. And it's um, so with, um, for instance, if you have a, an interstellar empire uh, with ships that can travel cheaply and instantaneously between planets interstellar trade makes sense if you have a uh, a situation more like kind of 17th century earth where voyages are dangerous and take a very long time that trade makes less sense so you would have for instance set up a colony in america that colony has to become self-sustaining rather than you wouldn't be importing the food from England every month. So you have to look, kind of look at that situation and apply that to interstellar thing. It, you know, there has to be a very good reason why you would take anything across light years because of the cost and the, and the difficulty. So there has to be a very good reason why that colony can't simply make it itself. So mm -hmm. it's things like that that set up the society and, 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 the more you think about things like that, the more it kind of shapes the society and shapes the, the characters. Um, and also, if you introduce limits to your to your technology, so for instance, if the starships can only travel at one light year an hour, or if they can, if they appear to travel instantaneously, but from an external observer, it takes the same amount of time as light would take to go from point A to point B something like that, then you have to think of the implications of that. And the implications of that can create a great story. 
Yes, yeah, so in a way, it's a bit like um, the analogy I was thinking of before this call is uh, a tennis court. Uh, you know, you have a tennis court with um, you know with with lines on the court. Those are the those are the boundaries. Without that, you're just batting a ball around in a field, and it's not as much fun, really. It's not as challenging. What makes it interesting and what makes it fair is to define those constraints. And then within those constraints, that's where the drama occurs. That's basically your stage, right? So your stage is a set of technological or physical constraints on what that world's possible, uh, what, what's possible in that world, I should say. And then within that, you can start to tell a story. I think your inspiration, you mentioned uh, in, in your writing that you're inspired by Ian Banks, who encourages you to dream big and don't be encumbered by too much logical constraint, uh, but rather think big. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is that most sci-fi writers tend to write about dystopias. Um, and what you like about Ian Banks is that he can envision a utopia and find the drama in that. Yeah, um, I like, and, I and like I th- that too. I think that's a really interesting notion because we've, we've heard plenty about dystopian futures on this show. And, you know, Brett knows I tend to go there anyway without the science fiction writers helping me. Um, uh, it's easy to envision dystopian worlds. It's easy to, to extrapolate from the problems that we face today in today's society. And then, you know, think, gee, what's the worst case scenario? Some of us tend to do that naturally. Um, but you go the other way. You actually envision utopias. Tell me about that part of your practice. I'm with you, Gareth, by the way. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily call the societies I envision utopian. Um, Obviously, in the embers of war, they've just had this cataclysmic war between two different human factions with very different political beliefs. Um, I guess you could call it utopian in the fact we survive the 21st and 22nd centuries as a species, which um, some people would find... uh, doubtful at the moment with the challenges we face yeah um in um my last two books stars and bones and the one that's coming out next year called descendant machine they're set in a universe where um humanity and i didn't mean this to be topical when i started writing it but um they're they're set in a a world where humanity uh, is the planet's in trouble the climate's in trouble and then through a series of escalating international tensions, a nuclear war is launched. And um, the day the book was published, the tanks rolled into Ukraine. So I thought, oh, my God. Um, but um, at that moment, um, a, an alien entity intervenes and saves the human race, but exiles them from the planet in order to give the planet time to heal itself. And we're set adrift in some arcs, which are um, intelligent and can look after every need. Nobody is starving. Nobody is is um, in want for shelter or medical attention. It's what you might call a utopia in that there's no scarcity, there's no inequality, everyone has everything they need. However, one or more of the characters argue that maybe this has infantilized us as a society. Um, in the fact now we we have nothing to strive for and it's a world where there's nothing to strive for is maybe not a world that humans can exist in so there are still there are still people going out there exploring there are still people getting into trouble um there's still crime um even though there's no money there's still people you know there's still murder there's still crimes of passion so there's still a police force and there are still laws so any utopia is only utopia from a certain point of view. Um, and one could argue that um, various historical periods have been considered utopias by the people living in them, but for the people who were catering for them and uh, slaving for them, it was certainly not a utopia. So utopia is just, I think, depends where you stand. Uh, how do you, you know, um, you obviously incorporate um, artificial intelligence and, and sentient machines and so forth into a lot of your writing. How how do you feel AI is going to affect the human species, you know, um, politically, socially, economically? You know, have you got some thoughts on that? I know it's a bit of a broader question, but. I, I, yeah, I'm. 
it depend it could go many ways and there's been you know many books written you know around about the turn of the millennium there were a lot of books written about the the singularity where we would get runaway intelligence that would outstrip us and, and take over the world and, and, and so forth um i think it's inevitable that we will eventually create a machine that thinks or at least appears to think as well as we do um i think it will be philosophically incredibly difficult to say categorically whether that machine is self-aware or not um i think that's going to be a very very hard thing to actually defy i think there will be a lot of claims to artificial intelligence before we get real artificial intelligence um and i think through those claims we will get um I don't think there will be a huge trumpeting in society of like, we have created AI. Like in, in the Matrix, Morpheus said, humanity is united as they create. That's not going to happen. So we're going to get it in a lab and it's going to leak out in the papers and people, yeah, okay, you've got AI, whatever. And it won't be till it causes a problem or presents us with some drastically brilliant solutions that we will actually start to appreciate it, you know, uh, in a widespread kind of way. It will be a niche interest. Um, longer term um assuming it's uh amiable to coexistence with humans um i can see having um creating extremely intelligent ai could help a great deal with planning with dealing with very complex systems such as uh the climate and the economy um I mean, every complex system from like traffic flow, um, it would be extremely beneficial. Um, whether or not they would be amiable to, to that kind of coexistence um, depends, I think, how we treat them to start with. So if we treat them as a slave race, basically, then obviously that's how you get terminators. So um, we, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting time. And I think it could, like any tool, it could be, um, of extreme benefit or extreme hazard. Yeah. Oh, oh, as you're Sorry, saying, saying that, uh, as, as you're mentioning that about AI, um, you know, the, the way it can be very beneficial for some complex challenges that we currently can't get our hands wrapped around. Um, it occurs to me that this is one of the reasons why people often focus on dystopia, why it's easier to focus on a dystopia. It, it's because as soon as we solve a complex problem, we tend to take that solution for granted. You know, one example of that is um, is vaccines, right? So, you know, without a doubt, this is the greatest medical advance of the of the 20th, 20th century is the ability to uh, immunize people uh, against communicable disease. Um, and then, just you know, two generations after we've achieved that, after we've stopped smallpox, the scourge of civilization for centuries, um, we take it for granted so much so that people start to attack vaccines and they start to cast doubt on them. You know, I noticed something in in your book um, Stars and Bones uh, that is uh, the you know, this idea of this um, entity that can infect anything, and um, so that you can't tell who's real or who's been infected and who's who's you know who's fake, I suppose. Or uh, you know, you start to create this element of doubt, persistent doubt, right? In an otherwise very very pleasant world, and um, and it it seemed to me, I don't know if this is accurate, but it seemed to me that's a reflection a little bit on our pandemic situation. You know, when during COVID nineteen, there wasn't just one pandemic, the the infectious disease COVID nineteen. There was a second pandemic, which was dis, which was sent uh, distributed through social media, which was misinformation, right? So, you you saw this kind of horrifying experience, at least for me, uh, where you'd see people that you thought you knew well, people who you were connected to on social media. And they'd start to spread utter nonsense, um, you know, disinformation, stuff that was easily disproven. You know, where you five minutes of, of searching on Google would quickly show you that that notion was not uh, not at all accurate. But people would stand behind it, and they'd sort of double down on it. You know, if you if you called them out on it and said, "Hey, that's actually not true," uh, they'd get quite surly about it. And um, I found that experience to be really unnerving during this during the pandemic. It's like, well, you know, one thing we all face this problem. This this infectious disease, but now among us, there are people who are actually, you know, uh, quibbling and arguing and resisting and spreading false information about things that might solve the problem. Um, what was that at all at work when you were writing Starbones? Were you thinking about that notion of uh, doubt uh, when you created that entity? When I first 
sort of planned that before the pandemic. Um, and I was thinking more of sort of John Carpenter's movie, The Thing. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, there's, I think there's a line where they say, you know, if this escapes into the wider population, it's game over. So I thought, well, let's take something similar and set it loose in a wider population. Nice. Um, and, you know, and havoc ensues. Um, but as I said, when I started writing that, and I, so I was there writing about these quarantine measures and this disease, and then lockdown happened, and I was in the middle of writing that, and it was just like, my brain was like, oh, my God. Um what am I doing? Nobody will ever want to do this <laughs> because it's it's too too topical. Um, so yeah, and that was a challenge. And I've actually found the writing of that book very hard because of that, because of the stress of the pandemic and the fact right. that I was talking about related subjects. It became very very difficult. Um, I think I say in the afterward that that book nearly broke me. It got, got to the point where I didn't think I would ever finish it, and if I didn't finish it, I would never write another book. Oh, so. Wow. That was one of that was the big challenge I, I, I sort of had to fight through with the pandemic and eventually came out the other side. Do, do, do you think of yourself as a philosopher in that respect, Gareth? Because a lot of what you're talking about is is human philosophy, right? I, I have studied philosophy um, and psychology a bit. Um, you know, I wouldn't claim to be any kind of authority at all, but I do think about these these things. And, uh, you know, I've got a shelf full of um, Greek and Roman philosophers' books. Awesome. Well, let's take cool. a quick break, and then yeah. when we come back, um, let's uh, let's maybe talk about your new book, um, Descendant Machine, and um, talk a little bit more about um, you know where you see humanity going. You're listening to the Futurists. Uh, I'm your host, Brett King. We'll take a quick break and be right after, right back with uh, more from Gareth Powell. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Terzik with my co-host, Brett King. And today we're talking to Gareth Powell, who's a multiple award-winning science fiction author, who's also written a really useful manual for aspiring writers. Gareth, it's been fun talking to you because this conversation has bounced around between three points. One of them is writing drama, writing stories that are compelling. Another point is this notion that you've got to put some boundaries around that. Otherwise, you're just out in the field bouncing a ball, and that's not much fun. And so there's some notion of um, imposing some logical constraints on that possible world. But where we just got to before the break was some of the philosophical underpinnings, uh, some of the thought, the bigger thoughts about how does that affect us as humanity? Uh, how does that affect our relationships with each other? Uh, so on that note, I thought we'd bring back, uh, we'd start with that a little bit. And, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your most recent book. Yeah, Descendant Machine is uh, a book set in the same universe as the previous novel, Stars and Bones, but set 50 years later, and I don't think um, and, any of the same characters. So it's a standalone novel and can be read independently, but it's just set in the same universe. And this one is much more about the nature of time and the nature of religion and the, um, the nature of who we are and the purpose of, of, of what different races have in the universe and, and who sets that purpose and who, and who, um, who decides and, you know, is tradition toxic? It's, you know, cause we're not deciding for right. ourselves what we should be doing. We're following the dictates of people who've been dead for a long time. You know, it's just, just peer pressure from dead people. And it's, it's kind of exploring those, um, those kind of notions, while at the same time um, exploring, uh, this sounds awful, but it, it, interspecies love, you know, does love transcend um, physicality? Is it, is it a more of a mental, spiritual thing than a physical thing? And so on. So there's a lot of different things going on in there around a kind of quest-style narrative. So. Uh, I gather that the 
a couple of the main characters in, in the new book, The Senate Machine, it, it, um, you know, tend to be sort of a high priest type figure or something like that. Like this, this, uh, you know, just from reading the description, like this order of monks who've been, um, you know, uh, there to protect this, uh, uh, this machine from re-waking up. Cause the, the issue is of course, uh, what's the machine going to do when it's turned on. Um, but, uh, you know, um, you, you mentioned this sort of yin and yang, uh, you know, of religion from a traditional perspective, uh, you know, lot, lots of writers like Ian Banks, um, you know, uh, you know, even Alistair Reynolds, um, you know, they don't tend to tackle, they, they, if they do mention religion, it tends to be with these primitive societies that are, are out of the loop in terms of technological advancement, you know, but as a human species, uh, you know, how do you think we'll develop in in respect to that relationship with religion? Just an easy question. <laughs> um, I think religion is something apart from technology in a lot of ways. I think religion is, I, th- I think it's fairly fundamental part of our human makeup. And I'm not, necessarily talking about organized religion here i'm talking about you know even i know perfectly rational scientifically minded people who will tug a forelock when they see a magpie or um you know or who will sleep with the lights on after watching a horror film even though they 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 know that you know those monsters don't exist at at three in the morning maybe they kind of do so it's and we have people who, 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 who I think recently, instead of saying, well, God will provide, God will do this, people say, oh, the universe will provide. Instead of saying prayers to, to, to God, you, you manifest your Manifesting, yes. It's the, Jim Carrey it's, talks about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, and it's very much prayer with the serial numbers filed off in a new terminology. Um, <laughs> I like that. So I, I think we will always have part of us that is a little bit spiritual, a little bit kind of superstitious. Um, and a part of us, you know, we're, we're, we're pattern recognizing machines. So when things happen that we can't explain, we put together patterns of coincidence and patterns of, um, you, you know, different events and stuff and, and ascribe them a cause. And I don't, I don't see that changing because I think that is a fundamental part of humanity and yeah. it goes hand in hand with our storytelling. Yeah, um, imaginations that we we yeah. invent stories to explain things. We do. Um, we create mythology. We do it all the time. And even when we think we're being scientific and rigorous about it, we're still inventing mythology. You know, there there's a strong argument to be made that there, there's a cult of the singularity. This this belief that ever increasing progress uh, and ever ever improving machine intelligence is someday you know going to convert to something magical and it'll change the world. And there's, there's quite a number of people that believe that so fervently, um, but even though that's just a projection, right? That's that's a, um, a theory, it's it's not reality. I was just talking to a, a gentleman the other day about homo economists, and he was giving me this kind of mini lecture uh, about rational thinking, how people make rational, logical decisions, economic decisions, and so on. And I stopped and I said, hang on, you, you do understand that there is no such thing as homo economicus. There is no rational human, we are all irrational on some level. And we have a tendency to fantasize um, and, and you know, invent these scenarios uh, that aren't grounded in any kind of reasoning and they're not grounded in scientific logic either. And people make all sorts of irrational economic decisions. And we see that in the way people vote as well. Uh, you know, we can point to examples in the UK where you are in, in here in the United States quite recently where people vote against their own economic self-interest. Um, part of that is what makes stories t- storytelling so interesting, right? That's sort of why we're driven to consume things like science fiction, because we wonder what will life be like in these alternate worlds or these future worlds? And uh, gee, will humans ever escape the affliction uh, of, of you know, being haunted or doomed uh, by these uh, irrational thoughts? Um, and, and maybe that's where this impulse, this religiosity impulse springs from. Some people say that there's a transcendent impulse, right? This is... Um, more along the lines of Freud and Jung, uh, where people have a craving or desire to be a part of something that will outlast them, that we're, fear, we're fearful morality of mortality. Uh, and so there's a desire then, there's some mechanism within us uh, to strive to be a part of something bigger that will outlast us. And that's why we want to be a part of a religious uh, tradition, because we believe that will continue, that will endure. 
I think does, does that, that kind of thinking? Yeah, go ahead. I, I would think that was more true in the Victorian era when the Victorians were obsessed with death um, because obviously Victoria was in mourning for 40 years and they were obsessed with death and legacy and our cities are covered in statues of Victorian men who wanted to leave a legacy. And, you know, they built theatres, they built art galleries to put their name on there so it would last. And that was that was their kind of... And you don't see that quite so much now. There are fewer people who are putting up statues to themselves and... Um, there doesn't seem to be that obsession with with death and with with leaving something behind that they're, you know, almost a kind of, um, you know, I think that's why the Victorians were so obsessed with the Egyptians as well, because mm-hmm. they were leaving legacies and grave goods and so on. You know, I'm sure there was, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there were some Victorian um, noblemen who, who, if they could have got away with it, would have built a pyramid. Um, yeah, and and mummified themselves for all time and you know that that partly drove victorian society um to become more um egalitarian and to build these libraries and theaters and things for that for everybody and hospitals um and also technologically that it, it drove the engineers like brunel and stevenson to build and to create and to you know strive to to build these edifices and these these engines and things so yeah in in the sense there for the obsession with death was really a strong driver of victorian society now i think we have much longer lifespans we have much less kind of infant mortality we have fewer um diseases um you know i i suffered from whooping cough about six years ago and it was nasty it was really nasty but I got antibiotics and I got over it. Right, right. And you're confident that you'll get over it. You're not doubtful about that. You're very confident you'll get over it, right? We don't we don't go to the hospital now fearful that we're going to die inside of it. Yeah. And in Victorian times, you got hooping cough, you were fairly condemned to die. You know, yeah. you got you got a, a wound. You were Okay, but let me play with that notion for a second. Let me play with that notion because today, certainly, you know, the most famous and perhaps the most successful entrepreneur and CEO in the world right now is Elon Musk. Uh, You know, he's got legions of followers, millions of people who are fans of his, and he's very explicit about his motivations. He doesn't hide uh, the stuff. His motivation is there is a mathematical certainty at some point the planet Earth is going to be hit by an asteroid and it would just be it would be foolish on a cosmic scale for us not to diversify and hedge our bets and colonize or, you know, move to another planet. Uh, And so that's everything that he does. Every waking moment of his time is devoted to getting humans to Mars. Whether or not he's successful, whether or not that's a pipe dream, leave that aside. I know he's super controversial, but isn't that kind of a modern continuation of that Victorian impulse you were just telling us a bit about? Isn't he kind of the, you know, Islambard um, um, Brunel of the 20th, the 21st century? It's interesting, interesting way of looking at it. Um, I, is he a philanthropist or is he acting out of self-interest? It's, you know, that's a, a, a debate maybe somebody else is more qualified to have. I mean, I don't, I don't know the man particularly. But um, yeah, I mean, we can all agree that having your eggs in more than one basket makes a lot of sense. The actual methodology of that, you know, for instance, once, say, for, for the, the sake of argument, Elon Musk takes a thousand people to Mars. Um and they set up a society there. Will Elon Musk be in charge? Will Elon Musk's son be the next person in charge? <laughs> you know, when he when his money Lord Emperor Musk, yes. Exactly. But when he gets there, his, his, his money isn't worth anything. There right. is no economy there. There is no yes. every, everybody is subsisting in the same, breathing the same air. You know, how does he remain in control? Does he have a finger on the turn the air off button? And suddenly we have a, you know, we, we have a dictatorship. So how does he keep control? How does he, ins- how does he keep order? How does he police crimes? Suddenly we're getting into these sociological issues that can turn very, very nasty, very, very quickly. I Sounds see a like a pretty good things. science fiction story. It sounds like a good <laughs> for a book, actually. Yeah. yeah. What would There's, that world be like? He certainly would be, uh, you know, he's not, 
he could very well be a, a benevolent dictator and maybe, and yes. maybe not so benevolent. <laughs> yeah. You see this a lot with the billionaires who are planning on, on um, building bunkers in New Zealand or whatever. Yeah. And then yeah. they're thinking, well, how do I keep my security forces in check after the apocalypse? When right. My, right. You know, I can't pay them because what's money going to be worth? So, you know, and, and they're talking about, do we put exploding collars on them? Do we <laughs> yeah. hold the key to the food cabinet? And, and, all, and, and that's, you know, there's going to be a revolution and you're going to be shot and somebody's going to take your bunker because you can't, yeah. you know, you can't default to slavery as, as your survival, you know, in order for your personal survival. So there have to be wider and more kind of communal solutions. Um, than the, than it, is, it, is a, it, it is astonishingly characteristic of the time that we happen to be living in, that we have some of the richest people in the history of the planet and what those people are focused on is not like Andrew Carnegie's mission to educate the public and build public schools and so forth. They're not interested in equal access uh, to voting or equal access to education or economic opportunity. What they're really interested in is building a bombproof bunker, someplace nice, someplace pristine, uh, yeah. loading up their snowmobiles with gold bars so they can get across the border to Canada in the winter or something. It's it's really it's really quite shocking. It's like they want to take it all with them. Talk about the impulse. This is this is your uh, your transcendent impulse, right? These people are like, I made all this money. I've got to take it with me into the next dimension. Like uh, the pharaohs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so looking at some sort of bigger picture stuff, you've mentioned Ian Banks, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, Heinlein. Um, um, you know, talk about um, how your worldview was changed by sci-fi, you know, as you were growing up. I think sci-fi, it makes you think about things in a completely different way than you're used to. And when I was growing up, I was reading... I remember reading The Ring World Engineers by Larry Niven. Right. Um, I must have been about nine or 10 years old. And I remember very specifically walking down a road thinking, well, why does that work like that? Why does that work like that? Why do we do things like that? Because the way the book's written, the main character is figuring out the world around him and, and you know, piecing it together. And I, having got immersed in the book, I found myself doing the same thing. And it changes the way you think. And so I was picking up book sci-fi book covers, and instead of going, "Oh, that's a pretty monster," I was going, "Ah, how would that monster work? What would it eat? You know, how does it maintain buoyancy in the clouds like that?" And it 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 just starts you thinking and asking questions, and you know, those questions turn into stories. Um, but also, it, it makes you look at the world and think, "Well, just because we've always done something like that, is that really the best way to do it?" Yeah. Now, Gareth, that is very much like what um, what we do when we do forecasting, you know, for uh, corporations and organizations that want to plan for the future. Many companies, many organizations, uh, you know, they, they want to have a five-year or 10-year plan, and they'll talk to someone uh, like me or Brad. Now, increasingly, even you're, you know, you're getting those opportunities as well. Um, can you make a connection between the process of building scenarios for a story, for a science fiction story? and then developing similar kinds of scenarios for corporations or organizations that want to do future planning. Yeah, this is uh, something I do for the Engineer magazine in the UK. I write a monthly column called Sci-Fi Eye, where I look at something that's in the headlines and then just spin out crazy kind of extrapolation of what that could do. Nice, so nice. I've done stuff about medicine, about um, automated battlefields, you know, about... Um, you know, everything up to building Dyson spheres and so on. So it's um, what science fiction does. I think it doesn't predict the future, but it predicts a range of futures. And it instead of telling you, um, you know, a, a dry kind of prediction, it just tells you what it would be like to live in a future like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you can... Uh, from that, you can extrapolate other futures and, and kind of get a sense of what it is to um, what what the predictions mean on a human level. Um, I think there's a. I remember seeing a cartoon years ago um, on Facebook of some scientists um, having just having cloned a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it says science will tell you what you can do. 
And then there's a picture of the Tyrannosaurus Rex chasing the scientist and says, but fiction will tell you why you should be careful. And mm-hmm. it's that, there's that kind of thing, whereas it can, I said before, you can't predict the car without predicting the traffic jam. So science fiction, I think, is very good at predicting traffic jams, at taking a scenario and thinking, well, how can I mess this up? How can I make life difficult for my characters um, in examining this? So, yeah, from that point of view, I think science fiction is a very good kind of modeling tool for future predictions. Yeah, yeah. In a way, you, what you're describing and, and with your with your your column, Sci-Fi Eye, uh, what you're telling us about is that you're kind of exercising this muscle for scenario planning. Right? It's like a it's like a workout routine. And if you do that routine often, then you're going to yes. be quite fit when it comes to generating new scenarios because, you, you know, uh, we see that a lot here. You know, we see a lot of sloppy, unathletic thinking about things like robot vehicles. Uh, you know, everybody I know would love to have a robot vehicle. Okay. But then they don't stop to think like, what will happen when there's millions of these things on the road? How will they interoperate? How will they act? Who gets priority if there's a traffic jam? Uh, how will you, you know, how will they deal with each other, the robot vehicles? How will they be aware of each other? What will change the traffic laws? Uh, you, what happens over the truck drivers that the insurance used to be employed? Industry will change. Yeah, exactly. right. so, so there's sort of this cascade of consequences. Some of them good, some of them positive, some of them mixed, you know, some unpredictable. Uh, and what I'm hearing you say is that it's useful to exercise that muscle, to start to think through some of the consequences and not just the happy ideas. Let's zoom it's, out. It's, 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 so before we do that, I'll just yeah. make that one observation, Rob, that I think that's quite common amongst the people yeah. we talk to, either the sci-fi guys or the or the futurists, that they get used to thinking of those future paths or scenarios, and it does change your worldview. Because if a new technology is announced or some you know some breakthrough is announced, you're immediately thinking, what are the impl- implications 10, 20, 30 years out? And and it's a very different worldview than I guess most people have, which is worrying about putting food on the table next week, right? But <laughs> Sorry, so, go ahead, Rob. No, that's okay. Let's let's zoom out a little bit. Let's talk about the far future. So, taking today as a starting point, Gareth, tell us what your vision is uh, for the next 20, 30 years out. God, and what you're what you're uh, excited about? Well, I'm excited. About, I I recently came across a new term um, in a review of a Kim Stanley Robinson book called Throughtopia which is not that we get a utopian society or we get dystopian society, but we just kind of muddle through. And I think that's our best shot at the moment. That climate change is going to be devastating. It's going to cause widespread trouble, but we can, we can get through it. And I think at some point, some of us will muddle through. And I think that's been the human history since the dawn of time is that we've muddled through at one point our entire species consisted of about a hundred people living on a beach and that was the entire human history there's a bottleneck um but we bounced back and we've done that a couple of times and i think climate change is going to be another bottleneck but we can hopefully um get through there are technologies we can use there is um we are as a species we are curious and we are lucky we are very bad at long-term planning. So I think if we can get through the next 50 years, I think we've got a pretty good shot at getting through the next 100. And if we get through the next 100, I think we will be in a place where we can have a much better control of our climate, a much better um, way of living in harmony with the planet. Um, that's the challenge, I think. Um, yeah. I would not like to put money on which way we're going to go because right now, uh, it's yeah, David Brin says top. we've got about a forty percent chance. That was his estimate, which I thought was interesting. He yeah. was thrilled about that. He was like, "It's excellent news. We've got a forty percent chance. We have a chance." That's what he said to us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Gareth. Look, it's been phenomenal to have you on the show. Um, tell us a little bit more about um, Descendant Machine and. Um, when that's out that comes out from titan books in the uk and the us um in april next year awesome awesome and um where can people i know you're act quite active on twitter because i that's how we met through through twitter and, and follow you there but where can people follow your musings and your thinking and and stay in touch with what you're doing uh well my blog is on my website which is um 
garethlpowell.com. Um, I'm also uh, very active, as you say, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and on both of those, I'm at Gareth L. Powell, so simply enough. Awesome. Now, just before we go, could you name your favourite sci-fi book or your favourite sci-fi author? We've talked about a lot of them in the past, just as a... Oh, my word, that's like... I know, choosing naming your, your favourite grandparent. Yeah, exactly. um, off the top of my head, probably Nova by Samuel R. Delaney. Oh, interesting. Um, you, you can see a, a lot. Um, I think Ian Banks owes a big tip of the hat to, to that book as well. There's, um, and a lot of the, the, he prefigured a lot of the cyberpunk imagery as well in there. Mm. As well, mm. it's, and, and it's, the science in it is very questionable now in hindsight. Right. But it's, uh, it's a, a rattling good retelling of the Grail law and the, uh, you know, the literary fireworks he employs. It's amazing. He wrote it when he was 20 years old. Well, that's one I haven't read, so good recommendation. Wow. I'm going yeah. to have to get. I would have guessed you. Today. I would have guessed you'd say Ian Banks. I was surprised yeah, I that you said uh, Delaney. Musk has been influenced strongly by Ian Banks too. You can tell, you know, like j- just read the instructions. You know, his uh, ocean-going drones and so forth. But uh, the neural lace, neural link. You know, it's uh, obviously so. not by uh, Banks's politics, though. No, no, true. Um, what, what would you what call a pleasure it's been to have yeah, you on the show. Thank fantastic. you so much, Gareth, for joining us. Uh, you've shared some really good philosophical musings uh, about the role of the writer in creating scenarios. So we've enjoyed hearing from you. Thank you for joining the Futurists. Thank you. That's that's it for the Futurists this week. If you like what you heard, uh, don't forget to check out our previous uh, backlog, back catalog of episodes, and make sure you leave us a review on iTunes, you know, uh, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast, because that helps other people find us. Our thanks to the team that helped us with production this week: week Elizabeth Severins and Kevin Hersham on the uh, production side, Sylvie Johnson and Carla Navarra on the social media side, and, and to all the team at the Futurists and Provoke for uh, getting this show. We will be back with more uh, insights on the future next week. But until then, we'll see you in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.